We'll discuss today in the class. Of course, we're doing the Parsha of Bahalotchav. And in the Parsha, I'm going to have a hold of a Chumash. Let's see if we can get a Chumash here. Uh, in the Parsha, we also talk about uh, the man, the mon, the man that came down. And, you know, like we like to learn from everything we study in the Parsha. We like to bring down some practical lessons for us. You know, we can get into the intricate parts of the Torah to try to figure out the different laws and the different different laws. Oh, and Heidi's here. Wow, you got a big crowd today. Good. Almost got a minion. Um, so, you know, there's one. T- sometimes we just study the parsha, and you know, sometimes we try to understand what happened you know, or why things happen the way they happen. We try to make sense out of it. Are you cold? I can no, shut no, this no, thing. No, 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 I just uh, the cover okay. up okay. uh, and, uh, and, and, um, the, um, so we, we, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out the meaning or the explanation, you know, how it works and reasons for various different things that happen. But that's not sufficient because what we try to do is take a lessons in our lives to make it rele- relevant to us, to learn something. There's so much wisdom and there's so many beautiful ideas that we have to apply. You just got to find various different ways, avenues to apply something in, in, um, to ourselves. So today we'll try to t- apply something from what we learn about the mana, about the mana, which is in the partial. Bahalotcha literally means when you raise up. The simple meaning, as Rashi says, is uh, two, two, two um, interpretation. One interpretation was, it's actually second interpretation, that there was a step in front of the candelabra. So he went up. Bahalotcha means he just had to go up when he went up to light the kindle, the menorah. The other interpretation is that the kindling of the menorah needs to be done in a way that it remains lit. In other words, don't just start the job and light it and go. Halotcha means make sure that it keeps on burning the flame, which has also an idea that it's not enough just to say once or encourage once, but you got to sort of help, keep in touch, and make sure that the person can continue. As we learned last week, uh, that God gives the gifts and he makes sure that you keep the gift he does protect it so you keep on doing well you know we live today in extraordinary times it's not regular times so or- extraordinary times require extraordinary approaches what do I mean by extraordinary times there's uh, challenges you know maybe for some of us that are already uh, Middle age, or uh, maybe we've. Uh, Not you, Mike. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe we've, um, you know, come on in. Okay, sorry. It's one week where we're bedlam in my house. No, no, I put it up to you. It was just like. I'm out of the bed, somebody's leaving the tractor, so I'm running around getting the police from my house. Hi, Oh, wow. Good, you're walking. Hi, how you doing? Let's see. So, um, why am I saying extraordinary times that we live in? 
It's both, actually. It's in the negative, but also in the positive. There's always uh, balance, you know. Um, the challenges that the people that we have today um, are, you know, are, are very difficult ones. You know, there is uh, the most, I guess, difficult uh, challenge to, to Yiddishkeit or to Torah is the prevailing ideas out there. You know, prevailing ideas don't necessarily align themselves with, uh, with Yiddishkeit, with God, with the Torah, with mitzvahs. The prevailing ideas are um, that the human being is... Oh, I'll take it. Thank you. That the human being is the center of the universe and everything involves around, you know, about around, around the person, around himself. I mean, just listen to our uh, presumptive president wanting to go and listen to how he talks and you can see that uh, it's just all about uh, the person himself. But the, all the ideas, you know, what we live on, the culture, the ideas all over the internet and all over the media, social media, whatever, everything is all promoting um, oneself and giving us a very shallow uh, purpose of life, you know, very shallow meaning of what we're doing over here, very uh, uh, non-profound, uh, sub- substantive reason for everything what's going on, why we're alive and what we're doing. It's just, everything is just, you know, immediate gratification, try to uh, make yourself, you know, um, make out of yourself and your lot the best you can be uh, uh, physically, and, you know, that's basically the preoccupation. But from the religious perspective, from the Torah perspective, there is a God, and um, we are here not for our own self, but rather there is a purpose for us being here to make tikkun olam, to make the world a better place, to make ourselves better people, to, to work on ourselves, to accomplish something with ourselves, that we're here for a purpose, for a goal. Um, ordinary times, ordinary uh, medicines are sufficient. Extraordinary times, you need extraordinary medicine. What do we think? There's a very famous parable. Um, and this goes back to the uh, founder of the Chabad movement, Shneir Zalman, the Alter Rebbe. Um, he um, went and uh, he publicized the teaching of uh, Hasidic teaching that he learned from the, um, his teacher, Magid of Mizrich and the Baal Shem Tov. He went and he publicized it in a way that has never been done before. Basically, he published a lot, he gave a lot of talks about it, he disseminated information, and it was like, made it available, you know, in a very, uh, in an aggressive way to people to be able to study. And um, up till his time, up to the time of the Alter Rebbe, Shneur Zaman, up to his time, Yes, there were a lot of people that studied it. There were some people that, that were learning it, but it wasn't so readily available, and it wasn't... People felt that, you know, you need to be more prepared. You know, you can't just have 
the Hasidic thought taught to anybody, to just ordinary people. You needed to be on a certain madrega. You need to be on a level to, 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 to learn the stuff, the secrets of Torah. You know, it's let alone the revealed part of Torah, but the secrets of Torah, those are secrets which are meant for people who are of a higher caliber of distinguished people of distinction, not just ordinary people. But the Alter Rebbe went and he was of the view that, no, everybody should, should study, everybody should know about it, disseminate it, make it available, make it accessible to everybody. So they went and they, uh, one time they were publishing things a lot. So one of the pages of the teachings happened to end up on the floor in a disrespectful way for the pages. It wasn't like sacred text, which you should really not throw away. You have to bury it. You can't just dump it. And this was a sacred text that was just um, uh, floating around over there. One of his colleagues, who didn't necessarily agree with the Alter Revishner Zalman, was um, very, very critical of the Alter Rebbe. He sees, he said to the Alter Rebbe, you see what you have accomplished? You're taking this holy Torah, the holy ideas of our great rabbis, and you're throwing it all over the floor. You know, people are disrespecting it. How could you do something like that? So he, he was really upset with the Alter Rebbe because he blamed him for sort of publicizing it in such a way, publishing so much that it was not respectful for the, for the teaching. The Alter Rebbe, even though he disagreed with him, but still he found his words very harsh and he's trying to sort of put him a little bit at, at ease to rest. He shouldn't be so angry or so upset with the Alter Rebbe. So the Alter Rebbe told him, I will give you a marshal, I'll give you a parable for this. He says there was once a king who had a, um, had a son, an only son, and the the only son, the prince, he became very, very ill, so that um, they took him to doctors and to uh, professors, specialists, all kinds of various different medical experts, and nobody can come up with a way to heal this sickness from this son. One of the uh, older of uh, the physicians said that he had read in an old manual, in a manuscript, he said that there is a certain precious stone that if you uh, take the powder of that stone, you grind up the stone, and you take the powder and you mix it with water, whatever, and then you give it uh, to drink for the patient, then he might get better. So they tried everything else, so they figured they'll give it a try as well. The problem was a twofold problem. Number one was that that precious stone was part of the beauty of the crown of the king. So that means that in order to get that stone that they needed to grind up, they'd have to take and ruin basically the king's crown in order to get that powder. That was one problem. And the other problem was that the kid has gotten so ill that he didn't couldn't even swallow any medications. So even if you did grind it up, the problem was that we're not even sure that you're going to be able to give it to the child because he can't drink anymore, he can't swallow. So what are you going to do? So they came to the king and said, look, this is the situation. I mean, the 
Medicine is in your crown. Basically, you got to give up your crown if you're done. And also, he said that it's in your crown. And also, he said that um, we're not even sure that the medicine is going to work because the, the uh, prince may not be able to drink it. So they asked, what should we do? And the king says, look, you know, uh, I love my crown. It's inherited from so many generations. It's beautiful, everything else. But this is my only son. He's the only person really in the world that matters the most to me. I need him to continue the legacy, to continue uh, take over when I'm gone. So for him to go ahead and... Uh, to become the next king. I need to try whatever I could do to save his life. He says, I don't need my crown. I don't need the jewel. I don't need precious stone. I need to try to save my child. That's what I need to do. And even, he says, they're going to try to grind it. He might not be able to take it all. But even if a little bit of it will make it into it and he will get healed, a lot of it is going to spill over the sides. A lot of it is going to go to waste, yes. But maybe one drop was going to enter into the right place, and that's going to save my child. It's all worth it. And the Alter Rebbe basically uh, told, Shner told basically to the other rabbi, he says, look, we are the Jewish people. Our God's like only child. God's his only child. We're his children. And God cares about deeply more than anything else in the world. We are in a situation in where there are so many challenges, so many difficulties, there are so many Jewish people that are having hard times financially, emotionally, spiritually, and there's just a, it was chaos. Already in the time of the Baal Shem Tov, it was a very difficult time. The Jewish people suffered by the hands of the, of the uh, Christian of the church and all the, 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 the popes and the all, everybody, the crusaders, and there was... Was, the Jewish history was unfortunately full with all these kinds of, of tsarists, all these kinds of troubles that we experienced throughout our history. So a lot of Jewish people were disillusioned and almost gave up. And I, my father-in-law's yard site was uh, last week, and we went to the Ohel, to uh, the cemetery. And I said, one of the things that I admire and I just can't uh, even begin to to appreciate you know how people who went through a holocaust that went through such devastation such service such inhumane you know persecution humiliation and all the terrible things that they experienced and yet to remain faithful to Hashem you know to to continue to believe in God, to continue to uh, want to raise families that are going to be uh, people that follow the Torah, that follow the mitzvahs. They're going to continue to uh, send their kids to education. Maybe they're going to pay for their education. It's going to cost money. It's going to and deny themselves things that they would maybe like, and they're just doing it so that they can help make sure that the next generation... Where did these people get that strength from after all that they suffered. I mean, they could have justifiably so argued, where was God when we needed him? You know, where was he? How come he didn't help us? And still, they kept that emuna, that belief and that token, you know. I mean, try to imagine 
ourselves sometimes, you know, I say we get right away, you know, as soon as something doesn't go our way or something, we get right away all upset with God. And we, and we, but how do these people really continue to believe and continue to hold on and to, but in the time of the Baal Shem Tov, it was very, very difficult. And not everybody is able to just, uh, you know, hold on. They needed additional additional means to give them the, the chizuk, the strength they needed to be encouraged. And that's what the Alter Rebbe did. He inspired people with the teaching of Hasidus that one of the things is to know God, to learn about God, to, to experience, try to experience a closeness to God, to try to meditate, to reflect, to, to appreciate to daven with kavana, to 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 try to do what you can in in a way to connect yourself, and he and he he gave in his teachings he gave various different illustrations, various different parables, various different uh, concepts to all to know God, to understand that when we do here a mitzvah, it means a lot more up there. When we when we um, learn Torah, we're connecting ourselves with God. All kinds of beautiful things. That should help people to want to connect to Hashem. They should want to connect to Hashem. It was necessary. So, the, in the example of the Alter Rebbe, he says, you know, when the child is, is sick, you know, when the child is sick, uh, you know, uh, you don't uh, look whether the medicine is going to fully go or going to spill out. You know, a lot of the writings may go on the sides, it may be stepped on, it may be disrespected, but we're still hoping that maybe someone, somewhere, is going to benefit from that extra, I guess, encouragement, that extra enthusiasm. Let it be so. So even though we're grinding up the stone, this is a beautiful uh, treasured crown. Hashem, you know, holds it very dear. But if the purpose of it is to help another Jew to bring him closer to God, to make him uh, more aware of his uh, being, that's that is worth it. And I um, I keep on repeating, but I'm not sure that everybody heard. But I, I like very much the Rebbe's example that the Rebbe said that you know sometimes you know you feel when you try to push somebody to do or to encourage them to do something, then you say, maybe the person feels, he says, you know, what, why is it your concern, you know, what I do, you know, you just, you know, in America we say, mind your own business, you know, I mean, you know, don't, why are you, so first of all, as far as Jews, we're all in it together, we're in the same boat, so there's no my business, your business, we're, we're all in it together, we need to work together, I mean, we don't always behave that way, like we're together, but at the end of the day, we are in it together, and uh, we can accomplish so much more if we would realize that we're in it together, but, but sometimes, you know, when there's a fire burning, the Rebbe brings the metaphor, so there's a fire burning, and, um, and a person is sleeping next door, and, you know, he's having such beautiful dreams. He's having uh, a beautiful uh, time, and he's in La La Land, and he's... And then you come and you wake him up, and you say, you know what, there's a fire out there. He's in the middle of sleep. He says, get away, don't bother me. <laughs> so he says, but there's a fire over there. He says, mind your own business, you know. He says, but there's a fire. Finally, he gets him up, and he takes him out, and he Save. saves his life. 
Now, what do you think at the end? What is the person going to say to the person that woke him up? He said, why'd you bother me? He's going to thank him profusely for saving his life. You know, you actually did something so special for me that you saved my life. So the same thing is true. I mean, in the best testimony of this, you know, all the people that benefit from their lives have been made for the better, both spiritually, emotionally, physically, and financially in a lot of different ways because when you live a moral and ethical life and a life which you bring God into your life, then your life is better in every way, in all aspects. It's also in the physical way. You can't sometimes tell right away, but that is the case, you know, when you are connecting to Hashem through the mitzvahs, and you do the best you can. It doesn't mean not everybody can do everything all the time, but you do what you can, and that gives you that extra life. So the Alter Rebbe, what he was doing was trying to give encouragement, giving means for people to be able to connect to Hashem, help them in their struggles. Because a lot of times people think struggles are only physical, financially, I don't have the money to do this, or I don't have... But mostly, and the difficult struggles is in your head, in your cup, in the head is the struggles. Because, you know, you struggle with your own amuna, you struggle with your own, what do I believe, what don't I believe, what is really going on, and, you know, and quite frankly, we're conflicted, you know, we don't have things like 100% sorted out, you know. <laughs> there was a story told about uh, one of the students, um, one of the heretics, you know, he was teaching that against Torah, and and uh, one of the students came to his teacher, sort of his guide, and he says, you know what, I got a problem. I still believe a little bit. <laughs> he said, what do I do? <laughs> he was trying to teach him not to believe, but he said, I still, something in me still wants to believe. What do I do? So the guy says to him, so he says, you know what, I once heard that, you know, when you wash your hands, the water that you wash is tummy, it's impure. If you drink that water, then you'll stop believing <laughs> drink the water so ah he says there's something to the water <laughs> i'm believing that <laughs> you know, if there's something to the if there's two other then you know then i have to believe it. but nevertheless what are we what are we saying over here is that um extraordinary times when we have extraordinary challenges require extraordinary means of helping people or helping ourselves so while maybe under normal circumstances we say okay you can only uh, study uh, Hasidus or the uh, sacred teaching the esoterical part if you have reached the age of 40 or and you've already filled your uh, mind with all the Talmud and everything else then you study normal times maybe uh, that night even to learn Talmud you say well why am I going to study Talmud? Why am I going to study? I don't know the Chumash yet. I'm not going to know. No, no. Normal times you do normal order. Now we live in a time which we do which means you grab and eat, grab and eat. Whatever it comes to, we can't go in the order. We got to just do what we can to try to make ourselves healthier spiritually, to try to make ourselves happier spiritually, emotionally, to try to help ourselves. So we grab hold, of course, provided that it's grounded on the uh, tradition, on the Torah, and the mitzvot, you know, and as, as, as divinely commanded by Hashem.
So what do we talk about? What do we see about the mana? How does this connect to the mana? What do we get? So first, let me uh, tell you a little bit what the Talmud uh, says in um, what the Talmud says in, uh, in tracted Yoma. It says like this: There seems to be a contradiction as far as exactly where the mana came down. Where did the mana came down? In one verse, the verse states in today's parsha. It states in one verse. It states that the manna came down inside of the camp. That means basically it landed in the camp. That was the manna. But there's another pasuk in Shemos where it says that the manna actually, you had to go out. He told them to go out to collect it. They had to go out. So it seems like it was outside of the camp. And yet there's a further verse in our parsha which says that they scattered to collect it, which seems that they went even further. So where did the mana fall? Did it fall in the camp? Did it fall outside of the camp? Or it fell far away from the camp? So the Talmud says that it's all true. It depends for whom. The tzaddikim, it says the righteous people, they got their mana next to their door. They just... Yeah. Got out of the door, picked up the manna, and it was all there. The Benunim, that is the middle people, just people, maybe 50-50, 50% good, 50% uh, mistakes. They had to go outside of the camp. The Rishoyim, the evil people, they needed to go far away. And these three things also coincide with another expression that the Torah refers to the to the mana that they collected. Sometimes the Torah calls it lechem, bread. Sometimes the Torah calls it ugos, which is cakes. And sometimes the Torah said that they had to use their mills and, and, and grind it up and make it into flour. So how did the mana come down? Was it bread? Was it cakes? Or did it grain? Was it like grain that they needed to go through all the all the work. And again, the three things are all accurate. Depends for whom. The tzaddik got bread right there. Didn't have to do anything. Didn't have to, didn't have to go anywhere. And didn't have to do anywhere. Went out of his house, picked up the bread. The delivery was right there, the fresh bread. Enough for the day. And he brought it home. The middle people, they had to go out. And they got these cakes, they still have to be baked. But it was all needed, it was all there. It just needed to be thrown into the oven, and they were done. And the um, Rishoyim, the evil people, they had to start through the process. They had to go grind, and they had to go do through, and knead, and go through all the process. Okay, these are the three people. But what do we see from this? We see from this one thing. It doesn't matter whether you're a tzaddik, it doesn't matter whether you were a Benoni, a middle, or whether you were a Russia. Everybody got part of the mana. Everybody got the mana. Now let's take for a minute and see what is the mana. Just to try to examine. Which, by the way, the mana came from the Shemayim. It came with the dew. Normal bread comes from the ground. There's actually a discussion. What bracha would you make on the mana that comes? Motzi lechem min 
according to some, right? Instead of Motzi Lechem in Aretz, he do it Min Hashemayim, it comes. Other people say, well, in the time of the desert, they didn't even make brachas yet, because David HaMelech was the one who first instituted the hundred brachas, which... So that's a whole debate, all right, but that's not for our class today. There's a question, really, what the bracha, who made it, when... But it's just interesting to see that some commentaries say that you made the bracha, Hamotzi Lechem Min HaShemayim, because it came from the Shemayim. What's the difference between the Lechem Min HaShemayim and the Lechem Min HaAretz? So there is two differences, two major differences. The first thing is, before we were talking about the Russia, what he does once he has the grain, right? But how do you get the grain? That's, that's also, when you work, when you talk about Moitzi Lechem Min Haaretz, when you talk about the bread that comes from the ground, how we can't just go and collect grain. Uh, what happens is, you got to plow the fields, and you got to sow the land, and you got to cut and prune, you know, got to do all the work and, and winnowing it and threshing it, and you know, you got to do all the, actually in the Mishnah in Shabbat, which talks about the laws that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat, the 39 Malachot, is based upon, a good section of it is based upon the Malacha that you do when you bake bread, because this was done in the Mishkan, they used to bake over there for the various things, so there's Tanas Dur the Pascha Tanah, the Gemara says, so there's an order of Chodesh, Zareya, Koitzer, Ma'amer, everything the Mishnah says, there's how to get rid. Which means to get the grain, uh, to get to the grain, takes effort, you've got to work hard. It's, it's, uh, it's hard work. Then we have um, another thing. Is because it says, and our sages say to us that the that the that the grain that the mana had a unique quality that you did not it did not have any waste. There was no waste. You absorbed it all and nothing came out. Which which means which essentially means that everything was nutritious, everything fed, it all was good, it was a very powerful, energizing food that didn't contain nothing, nothing was wasted. It was all absorbed by the body fully, and the body utilized and took the whole thing. Now we're saying that who got to eat this bread, which by the way, it says that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was on the mountain, some say that there too he ate what did he eat? He ate the manna. That's what he ate up there. Some say he was on another level of manna. There's various different, again, there's various different commentaries about that. Rabbi talks about it in his footnotes. But, generally speaking, the manna was a very powerful food. It wasn't like the food that comes from the ground because it had no waste. And everybody got to be part of that food. So, the tzaddik ate the manna, this bread, the benuni ate the manna, and the rasha ate the manna. Everybody ate it. This powerful, energizing manna that came, that the person internalized, ate it up, had to impact them, had to make a difference in their lives. 
because it was an energy of Hashem. It was minashamayim. It was a, a a powerful bread, a powerful food. So it had to energize them. It didn't happen immediately. It took time, because after that, the the, the person still remained a Russia. It's not like he ate the manna one time and then the next day it all started falling next to his house, you know. He still got it out there, even though he ate the mana. Which means, sometimes the impact can go down to a very low level. The mana, which is so high, can go down very low into a Russia, and you don't see how it's making a difference in their lives, but eventually, when they get to the point in which they start getting it, then you see that it was the mana that actually pushed them from the inside to, 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 to change the way to become on a higher level. Well, you may not see that in the, in, the, in, the, in the beginning. That's a special quality that the mana has. A special quality. There's no waste over there. Everything goes in inside and it comes from Hashem. All the physical things also come from the Torah. So in the Torah we also have the two breads. We have the bread that comes from the ground and we have the bread that comes from the heaven. Those are two bread. Just like we're nurtured by physical bread for our bodies, our soul is nurtured by the Torah we study. The Torah we study nurtures our soul, gives us our spiritual vitamins, food, what we need. The food that comes from the ground is equated to the revealed part of Torah. The difference, one of the difference between the esoteric and the revealed part of Torah, between Hasidus and the revealed part of the Torah is when you study the Talmud, say, or you study this, there's a lot of arguments, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of answers, there's a lot of give and take. But when you talk about the Zohar, it talks about the esoteric part of the Torah, Hasidus, the Kabbalah, over there there's no machlokis, there's no arguments, there's no disagreements. Over there, and no questions, it's just straightforward. Which is therefore, the revealed part of Torah is considered like lechem or it's bread that comes from the ground, which takes a big effort to you sow and you do it, you have to work hard for it till you get it. The esoteric part, the Hasidus part of the Torah is equated to the mana, which comes from the, from the heaven, because there is no machlokas over there. And now, the question is, who should study this esoteric part of the Torah? And the Rebbe was addressing, in this particular talk that, I was, that I'm giving over, the Rebbe was addressing people that argued, as I mentioned earlier, that in order for people to start learning the Hasidic thought and the ideas, they need to be first at a higher level and we shouldn't teach it to people that are not yet fully observant or they're not yet fully knowledgeable in other parts of Torah. You have to wait till they get to a certain level. And the Rebbe says, yeah, well, under normal circumstances, maybe. But the manna teaches us that even a person who's a Russia. If he eats the mana, eventually the mana is going to affect him to change the way. When you teach somebody any part of Torah, and you say to yourself, I'm wasting my time with this person. I'm teaching him, he's learning, 
he isn't internalizing anything that he's learning. He doesn't care about what he's learning. He's just taking it intellectually. He's just learning it as an interesting subject. He's not, she's not, he's not really, the Torah isn't teaching them anything. You know, a lot of times in Yiddish, the word to study and to teach is the same word. Learning. Learning in Yiddish means to study and to teach. So they used to say, sometimes you study Torah, but what does the Torah study teach you? Are you learning anything? Is the Torah, did the Torah make you a better person? Did the Torah refine you? Have you become a little bit more gentler? Have you become a little bit more sensitive? Have you become a little bit more caring because of all the Torah you're learning? Well, you see, no, you know, hasn't become caring, hasn't become sensitive, hasn't become more religious, hasn't done. So you say, it's wasted, you know. Why are we giving mon? We're giving mon, we're giving chassidus. We're giving it to Rishayim. We're giving them. Then wait till they become a tzaddik first, and then you'll give them. Or you'll start teaching them Torah when they become, you know, they're observant. You teach them Torah. But why teach them Torah now? What are they going to get? And the answer is no. That energy of Torah, there's a luminary of Torah, the Hasidic, there is a, such a powerful hidden force inside the Torah that we study, that that Torah eventually, as much as we don't see, we don't recognize it, is going to make its way through. It's going to break it through. It takes a little bit of the time. It takes uh, times to remove all the dust and all the blockage, everything that is covered up, but eventually it'll cover up. So the Rebbe says, look, anybody who claims with good intentions, no, they're trying to prevent other Jews from studying Torah with all kinds of reasons. For this reason, for that reason, the Rebbe said, you know, you're going to have to answer, you're going to have to answer, and I guess there was a movement, you know, the Rebbe, the Rebbe speaks of, you know, this was in the 19... Uh, 50s, you know, 50s over there in that time, in the, in the early 50s, there was, Rebbe said, while there was less objection now to the actual Hasidic thoughts itself, but people are objecting now that the people shouldn't be learning this. In other words, it's not against the idea of Hasidus, but the objection became to the people that are learning. They're not worthy. He says, no. If you're going to stop somebody from learning Torah, you are going to have to give an accounting. If that person doesn't become a better person because you denied him the opportunity from learning Torah, then you are going to be responsible and you're going to be expected. How come you denied another person, individual, another Jew, an ability to learn Torah to become a better person? But the Rebbe says, very interesting. The Rebbe says, everything in the world, whenever there is an objection to something good, whenever you find that there is an obstacle, there is something stopping you, you've got to take that obstacle and you've got to turn it around. And you've got to say to yourself, oh, this obstacle is created to try to stop me from doing what I'm doing. I'm actually, my response is going to be, I'm going to do even more. I'm going to do even more. 
you know, when they when the terrorists try to stop us from going on and doing our daily work, from not going and not doing to scare us, to frighten us, to have us, you know, inhibit us, our movements that we shouldn't be able to go. What is the response? We're going to go more than before. We have to do it more. We can't accept. When we have a challenge to our Yiddishkeit, the one thing is, okay, I'm challenged. You know, what do I do now? The response needs to be, no, I'm challenged. I'm going to actually do a lot more. I'm not going to do less. I'm going to do a lot more. I'm going to do even better. If people are trying to prevent other people from learning Torah, what does it mean for me? For me, it means I got to learn more Torah. <laughs> I got to get more people to learn Torah. I'm going to do the opposite because the only reason to have the obstacle is so that I overcome the obstacle. And as Rebbe puts it, when the eight Sahara sees that his plan didn't work, because this is all devised by the Yitzhahara trying to stumble us. And, uh, and he sees that it didn't work because we didn't fall for his plan, fighting back. He's going to take away the obstacle. <laughs> He's going to have no, no time to, um, to do that. As the Rebbe writes in other letters, a lot of times also we get sad about certain things. We get sad, we get upset, we feel down. Well, things happen in our lives, you know, which causes you know, uh, to feel that way. So, what should be our response to that? What should be our response to that? You know? So, the natural response is, okay, I'll be depressed, I won't see anybody, I won't do anything, I'll, I'll close in with myself, I'll be, you know, you know, that's it. But the response, the Rebbe says, needs to be the opposite. You have to get, there's a message that you know, you have to liven up. You have to bring joy into your life. Go ahead and do things that make you happy. Go ahead and do things that will raise your spirit, that will make you want to get up in the morning and see another beautiful day. Make, do things right. And the way to do it is bring in meaning to your life. Bring in real happiness. You can't sugarcoat this. You know, the sugar, it'll give you a high for a few minutes while the sugar gives you the boost, but then you'll fall down even worse than before. That's not the way. To get yourself something that'll give you a meaningful, do for yourself something good, as learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, doing something which will make you inside, happy in the inside, really down to your guts, into your essence, make you really happy. And then when the Yetzirah sees that he can't get you by depressing you or or uh, sometimes God sends you a message because, you know, you don't know how am I going to get out of this. I don't have the money to pay or I don't have. So instead of getting depressed, God sees that you don't fall for the Yates or horror. <laughs> You're actually doing the opposite, so he takes it away from you. So he takes away all the obstacles. You get the message. You try to change your ways and make yourself a better person. And then hopefully you can... Um, do better. So here we see the mana, which is so very high, touching somebody who's so very low, and we don't see the connection. And in reality, we see that a lot of times there are people that other people have given up on. They say, you know, they're too lost, they're too far, far from Yiddishkeit, they're not a mensch, you know, they're, you know, People don't believe in them anymore. But the Rebbe taught us, no, don't give up on anybody. Don't give up on anybody. There's nobody too far. 
and there's nobody too distant, and there's nobody lost. You can always, 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 the mana, give him a little love from Hasidus. Don't even teach him right away if you can't teach him the Gemara. You can start with Hasidus, you know. Give him a little bit of inspiration. Give him a little Primus Torah. Give him the mana. The mana will sit in him. It will push him. And eventually, the evidence now, as the Rebbe said, <laughs> the evidence now is the myriads and myriads of people who found their way to Yiddishkeit, who love Yiddishkeit, who are thankful, like the person that was sleeping and was woken up, are thankful and appreciative and say, thank you, you know, maybe I didn't want to come to the class today, I was too tired, you know, and I, you know, you slept me out, you know, you said go, you know, that, you know, you know, whatever, it's so hard and so difficult, but you came, but you know what, at the end of the day, you know, thank you, thank you, because... Because you know, this way we learned something. It made us it made us think a little bit. No, but it's interesting. And encouraged. The mana is something that you need. It's food, sustenance. sustenance. You need that food. Torah, we need. And we need. And then it's something that's tasty. Whether it's the you make it into a cake, or you make it into bread, or you make it into your. Grind that's the rabbi's fault if he doesn't give a good class. <laughs> so he doesn't right, make, you it have to tasty. make it tasty. <laughs> and also that if. if <laughs> self-understood. We shouldn't have to go back later and ask questions. But what did he really mean? But the thing is, it's really giving an example of something which we need. It's a sustenance. It's something that our bodies can't live without. And it's something that a person enjoys. So it's... Okay, that's the last